Well, good morning, Redeemer. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. My blessing of Happy Mother's Day comes also with an apology that it is difficult to tie in Mother's Day with the great and awesome day of the Lord. So I, uh, I have decided just to let you know how much I am grateful for you and how I honor you this day and love you, um, but we'll be diverting back to the text for the next few minutes. So um, it is really with not apology, but just an acknowledgement that this is not a typical Mother's Day sermon, but it is one that, as I've been studying in Joel and will more than likely finish today, I mean, it's been just sobering as I've uh, advanced into Joel chapter 3 and seen its its stamp and echo throughout uh, the New Testament. So um, with that said, let me, let me lead us in prayer as we go to uh, this final chapter of Joel. Um, pray with me if you would. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank You for making a way of escape for those who trust in You by faith in the finished work of Your Son, Jesus. For that day when all the nations will be gathered and judgment proclaimed. Lord, we exalt Your name, Jesus. And we thank You for the great gift of Your life so that we might have life. Lord, we approach this passage now in the closing moments of our study in Joel and we ask for Your help. I ask for Your help. Lord, would You give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and Lord, may the clear words of Your Word work its way into our hearts so that by them we can be renewed or transformed by the renewing of our minds. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Joel chapter 3. Um, I confess that I have probably a bad habit of uh, utilizing illustrations that are about my own life. Um, I was once taught that any time, any person that is going to be the object of humor in a sermon needs to be me and not anyone else in the congregation, right? So I try to uh, keep that in mind. But what I don't do well is finishing the stories that I sometimes start in a sermon. And you tell me these things. Because after a, after a message, some of you have, have recently come up to me and said, so? To which I say, so? And you say, well, well, what happened? And I'm thinking back through the points of my sermon, having already forgotten about the story that I was using to illustrate it. They said, well, you didn't tell us what happened when you were 16 years blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh. So it is oftentimes that I leave you without any resolve with some of those stories. This is not the case with the book of Joel. Having used this devastating effect that's brought about by the swarm of locusts, and he did so, as we've seen, to get the people's attention and to call them to repent of their sin, he then proceeded to show us how God became jealous for his people, and he had pity upon his land. And he's moved with that pity to restore then the years that the locusts had eaten. Last week we saw and watched Joel as he shifted a bit in his writing of this prophecy and he 
fast-forwarded to a future time where the restoring work of God would even include the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, regardless, as we saw, of gender and age and status. So let me back up just for a minute as we start this morning and, and remind you of this. As a vital part of the restoration of his people, God removed the northerners, right? We saw that throughout this book so far. He removed the northerners far from them. And the removal of God's enemies, including the locust, as well as earthly human enemies of God, right? So think Philistines, think Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, and, and the removal of them that had dominated God's people through the years. So it was just part of the restoration process. He not only restored the years the locusts had eaten, but as a part of that, he was removing their enemies from their midst. Well, we finally reached Joel chapter 3, the final and last chapter of this book. And in, in Joel chapter 3, Joel is going to elaborate on the great and awesome day of the Lord, which he mentioned toward the latter part of 2. And it was in that great and awesome day of the Lord that he was doing this mighty restorative work. And now in chapter 3, he elaborates on that. On that day, God will summon all nations together. And with all the nations gathered together, he will render a guilty judgment. And he will pour out his wrath upon those who mistreated his people and all who rejected him as God. I've entitled this message, The Last Battle, because it is the way God himself will bring about the part of his creation, the restoration of the part of his creation, not only to resolve, but to completely restore his creation to the way that it was intended to be from the beginning. That's all part of that process that he is going to do in the future to bring about his promise that we read in Joel chapter 2 of full and complete restoration, thus bringing resolve to his own story. If you'll join me in Joel chapter 3, I'm going to read it in its entirety and then offer for us just a skipping through this entire chapter to tell the story as it is so clearly put out there in this passage. Which follow along as I read, this is God's word for us, his people. <clears throat> for behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, in all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. 
You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever. In Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged. For the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the word of the Lord for us, His people. And you will see why this is no Mother's Day message. Point number one. There will be a day of reckoning for the nations. A day of reckoning for the nations. I split this first portion of the chapter up, the first 16 verses, into two parts. The first part is this. The nations are gathered and the case is presented. The nations are gathered and the case is prevented. Good journalists ask questions of a story so they can get it in print, so the readers can give a handle on what's going on. They ask questions like who, what, when. Why and where? And a good Bible student does the same thing, oftentimes as a mark and as a fruit of their studying the Bible on their own. And I was um, kind of led in the midst of this to ask some of these similar questions for us for these first eight verses so we could kind of have a handle on what's going on. The first question I asked is very simply, when? When is this going to take place? The, The passage makes that clear with its answers, it just does not give us clarity that we can mark our calendars with. The passage says this, For behold, 
in those days and at that time. And that's all we get. In the same way that Joel provided us with no time stamp in order to have an accurate date for the writing of his prophecy, this line, which I've just read, gives us no clue as to the exact timing of when to expect this final battle to take place when the nation's armies are gathered together by God summoning, summoning for um, battle with God and their ultimate judgment. However, the point of the chapter, the point of chapter 3 is more about what God will bring about than it is the timing. Even Jesus' disciples asked him questions related to this timing, right? They would ask him, hey, when will these things be? And, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And do you remember what he told the disciples and those who were gathered around him at his ascension? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Whenever this great and awesome day of the Lord is, not even Jesus knows. So the point being this, and, and this is what we do know, it is going to be a future day that will come with no warning. And more important than figuring out the timing of that day, which a lot of people fixate themselves upon, more important is to live in such a way so that we might be in a state of readiness for that great and awesome day. When? For behold, in those days and at that time. Well, to the what, it is also pretty simple what's going on here. And the what question I've given, really, I've broken it up into a two-part answer. The first one is this, that God will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, truth be told, this, this would have been kind of an idiomatic expression that would have been birthed out of Deuteronomy 30 when God was reminding them of his covenant promises after they had renewed the covenant and also after he had gone through with him about the curses and the blessings that he did in chapters 28 and 29. So this, this was more of an idiom than it was also um, just giving you the minutia of what he's about to do. I say idiom, if you know what I mean. I had a friend who lived in Rockwood, Tennessee. And he had all kinds of statements that he would make. They were just idioms, right? That, that only meant something if you were from that part, but it didn't take rocket science to figure it out. My favorite one that Phil, who actually was a pastor and worked with the IMB in Thailand, he once came up to me and said, Chris, that beat all I ever stepped in. And I said, What? Who says that? And he just had all kind of idiom and statements that he would use. And this is an idiom that would have had this at its point. Um, this line is a turn of pray, a phrase that would have been familiar to the people. And in all cases throughout the Bible that it was used, it referred to the restoration of a nation after their point of captivity. So that's why it would have been used for the children of Israel after they escaped out of Egypt. It's why it would have been used as a, as a statement of fact of we have been in exile, we have been removed from our place, we have been overrun, but God, God will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And what God is saying through Joel right here is that for behold in those days and at that time, when 
I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. He's hearkening them back to giving an ultimate time when he is making things right from the time when they have been held captive by their enemies, all of their enemies. Second part of this answer for what is this. God will gather all the nations together, and when he does, he will do so to enter into judgment with them. Look at verse 2, if you will. In verse 2, that we, we, we learn uh, the answer to the next question. The what? He will gather all nations and enter into judgment with them. Then this next question that we look at is who, and we see the answer to who in verse 2. In verse 2, we learn that God will gather all nations for judgment. Please, don't let your mind be limited in scope that the great and awesome day of the Lord is limited to earthly armies that opposed God as being under judgment, right? This is, this, is just the, this is just the picture of this battle. It is not limited to the fact that these are only judgments that are going to be cast upon armies, right? So the reason I'm pointing that out to you is I want you to be fully aware that there is a day coming that, on, that all peoples that have rejected God will be gathered together to face the judgment. Specifically, in these list of peoples in our passage, Joel mentions the people of Tyre and Sidon and all the regions that those two cities are in within Philistia. And you think about this, man, what, why in the world would you choose Tyre and Sidon to highlight when there is a plethora of larger peoples that have dominated over the children of Israel, why these? And though I am going to confess to speculating, there may be some pretty good reasons to why this was the case. Let's think about Tyre and Sidon specifically. Tyre and Sidon were 20 miles apart from each other, both of which were part of Phoenicia. They were obviously pretty important, especially Sidon, because Sidon was even listed by Homer in his writing of the Iliad. So we, we've got some preeminent, or we've got some important things here about these places. Sidon was the oldest capital of Phoenicia. I'm not going to get bogged down in too much minutia. I'm getting to a point here, so hang with me just a second. Sidon shows up a lot throughout the pages of the Bible. It was Sidon who were worshipers of Baal, worshipers of Ashtaroth, and they were a people that ultimately negatively impacted King Solomon. Sidon happened to be the place that was the birthplace of Queen Jezebel, if you remember. Jezebel was married to King Ahab, and together, but under her influence, Israel was introduced to the licentious worship of the Canaanite cults. Interestingly enough, you might think back to Joshua's day when the command to the people was to dispossess all the peoples of the promised land so you will not be impacted by their influence. The Sidonians, Sidon, the Sidonians were a people that were not dispossessed during Joshua's conquest of Canaan 
And as a result, they became one of the earliest oppressors of Israel. Those very people. I'm boring you with some of my Bible geekdom here. Forgive me, but let me bring it to the New Testament through the eyes of Jesus here. Those very same people Jesus mentioned as he issued woes against the unrepentant cities of his day. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. So he'd done a lot of mighty works in certain places, and in spite of the mighty works he had done, they had not repented. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So these are two cities that have been in the pages of Scripture for since the beginning, actually Genesis, uh, early chapters of Genesis where we first began to see them. We've seen what? We've seen when, we've seen who. Let me direct your attention to where. Because this valley of Jehoshaphat is pretty significant. And although there is some debate where this valley of Jehoshaphat is, whether it's a symbolic location or whether it's an actual location, there are a couple of things that we can be certain of in what we know. Later in this chapter, the valley of Jehoshaphat, and you noticed it when I read through it, will cease to be referred to as the valley of Jehoshaphat and begin to be referred to as the valley of decision. Twice in one sentence it will be given that name. The name Jehoshaphat itself means Jehovah judged. And although many believe that this valley is located in the site of the Kidron Valley, which is east of Jerusalem, between the city and the Mount of Olives, the text does not require a physical location to make its point any more than the absence of an actual date nullifies the reality of this coming day. So we have this location, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The significance of that name, however, shouldn't be lost on us as we think back through a guy named King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat um, was being surrounded in a valley in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you can check this out. And when an, an assortment and an alliance of armies came against the people of God under the leadership of King Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat's fear led him to bend his knee to God and seek his help in the midst of a pending and un oncoming onslaught. And all I'll say about this without kind of going too far into that story is this. When the, when the alliance of the armies came against God's people, the king called out to God and God thwarted the nations dramatically. Now you've got a great and awesome day of the Lord which is taking place in a valley that Joel is calling the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Whether it was a real place 
or a place that was of figurative importance, I do not know for certain, but neither of which are lost on me. Final thing here is the word why. In verse 2, that we learn that God will gather the nations for judgment, and here's why He'll do it. He'll do it on behalf of my people and my heritage, who are the apple of God's eye. In verses 3, 5, and 6, we see the extent of the evil done to God's people. The nations had scattered His people, they had divided up His land, they had stolen His rich treasures, and they had sold His people into slavery. Even the young boys and the young girls, you might remember that, that, that verse might have leapt off the page for you when it says, and I've cast lots for my people and have tricked, not I, in the nations, have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So little do the nations think about the children of Israel to include their literal children that they're willing to sell them for just enough to satisfy their carnal craving in the moment. I'll step aside for just a second to kind of give a clarion call that as a nation goes in relation to how they're willing to treat God's most vulnerable, to include our children, both unborn and vulnerably living, um, the, the hand of removal of God's blessing is not far. However, in light of what's going on, toward the end of verse 7 and 8, God vowed to gather all of His people that have been scattered and to return upon the heads of His enemies the just deserts for their sin and their treatment against His people. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 to 31, we read these words. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And then He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In verses 9 through 16, we see how, and this is the second part I want to show you, the verdict is rendered And His wrath is outpoured. I hope you catch the intentionality I'm using with the word outpoured because you heard its converse last week. God calls the nations together. And He told them to buckle up for war. I don't know if there's sarcasm in the words of God here or if there's just, hey, bring your best shot. But he challenged them to draw all the mighty men together and to beat their garden tools into weapons with all the warriors that they could muster. And the careful student of God's Word, having just read through Isaiah, will see that, boy, this is the exact opposite of what it was like when God instructed His people to beat their their weapons of warfare into gardening tools, right? But now he's calling on the nation's armies to do the opposite. Get all you've got to come and stand ready for this massive battle. In the first half of verse 11, the enemy armies are summoned for war, but in the second half of verse 11, 
God calls for his angelic warriors to assemble. Notice what it says, verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourself there. And then he says this separate sentence to the angelic forces above. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. And notice this, think back to King Jehoshaphat, just for the the memory jog there. In spite of the great allowance of nations assembled against God in the great and awesome mighty day of the Lord, he will sit to judge all the surrounding nations and bring bring about the payment upon their heads. And he will do so, verse 4, speedily and swiftly. Now in verse 16, we see the result of this last battle. Would you look down there, chapter 3, verse 16? Notice this, the Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Before we go on to the last section, and I'll just admit, I'm only touching on the last section, which is a beautiful thing. Maybe I'll come back to it in the nearest future. Um, But before we move on to that last section of this chapter, in which God reveals how the great and awesome day of the Lord can be a day of hope for God's people. Let me say this about verse 13. Check out 13. It's a weird statement. It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. What what are we reading here? The clue to understanding what this verse means is found in the last line of the verse with these words. For their evil is great. Back in chapter 2, we saw that God had, when God had restored His land to its seasonal and cyclical bounty, we, we plant at this time of the year, the rains come, we wait, we tend to the soil, and then later in another season... The harvest is plentiful and we go in and then repeat all of those over and over. So when God restored the land back to its cyclical bounty, He did so through the outpouring of the early rain, the abundant rain, and the latter rain. And this led to threshing floors that were full of grain. These are good things. And it led to vats that were overflowed with wine and oil. These are good things for the people, the children of God. But now in contrast to God's outpouring of rain, we see that the nations who stand in defiance against God and watch the news and see if you're seeing the evidence of the nations in ultimate defiance of God, our own included. In contrast to God's outpouring of rain, we see that the nation's sin has also poured out in steady streams in defiance against God. Their evil is great, right? Their outpouring of sin has resulted in a harvest that's ripe. It's resulted in wine presses that are full. And because their vats overflow with evil and sin, God is right. And God is just. He has every right in His just holiness to tell His angelic warriors to put in the sickle and cut them down. In verse 14, the name, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, changes to the Valley of Decision. Same place, different moniker. He writes this, Multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. 
For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. On that day, that great and awesome day of the Lord, the time for people to make a decision whether they will, we saw this last week, call upon the name of the Lord so that they might be saved. The time of decision for people in that day will be gone. God alone will be making the decisions. I think this has been so heavily upon my heart as I've walked through this. That I want to simply remind us unlike the false prophets of the Old Testament, who at any cost and at the cost of the people's eternity would stand before the people and usher these words, issue these words, sorry. They would issue words of peace, peace, where there is no peace. I don't want any people within the sound of my voice to look forward to that day with a false sense of peace. Because there is only one way by which people can have peace in light of that. And not only have peace in light of that great and awesome day of the Lord, but see it as a a day of hope. Allow me, if you would, to share with you how we can have peace. Peace. And it be founded where the peace is to be founded. Right? A day of hope for God's people. The last sentence in verse 16 reveals a contrast that provides hope for God's people in light of the coming great and awesome day of the Lord. Here it is. But the Lord is a refuge to His people. The coming judgment is not up for debate, but a way of escape has been provided. Again, I will say, the only decisions made in the valley on that day will be made by God Himself. Listen to what He's done. He has delegated the responsibility of final judgment to His resurrected Son, King Jesus. Who in Psalm chapter 2, we know has been given the nations as their footstool. As His footstool. Yesterday I heard a statement on a podcast that I was listening to while I ran and it stopped me dead in my tracks. I'm on Boynton Road. I stopped the thing, rewound it, heard it again, and um, emailed myself these notes. Here's what I heard. At the final judgment, the judge will be none other than the one who submitted to the wrath-filled judgment of God already. And that wrath-filled judgment of God was emptied upon him. It was outpoured upon him for the sake of all who would believe. Jesus, the Christ, bore the judgment that was rightfully due all people because we were all born separated from him because of our Fathers, Adam and Eve, and the the sin nature they passed down, we were enslaved to sin and death and our flesh. Those were enemies that we all were born confronted with. 
But Jesus bore the judgment that was rightly due all people so that prior to this great and awesome day of the Lord, those people who trust Him by faith could take refuge in Him and be separated from the wrath that would be poured out on those who rejected Him like Jesus taught a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep would be separated to inherit the kingdom and the goats into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Can I remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? This is good news. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. And that being here on earth and forever. When, we, when He finally restores things to the way that they were intended to be from the very beginning. God has been about the process of restoring what the locusts had eaten and they started eating in the garden. I'm going to ask you not to take that super literally, right? I mean, the locusts came in Joel. The enemy came in Genesis chapter 3. Joel brings this story to full resolve by sharing four ways in which the Lord is a refuge to His people. And apologetically, all I'm going to do is point them out and read them to you to be addressed at a later time. The Lord is a refuge to His people. First way, He is present. Verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. At Jesus' first advent, at His first coming, we celebrated the fact that Emmanuel, God was with us. When He bore the sins of man who trusted in Him by faith and were saved, the reality is that Jesus took up residence within each of us through His promised Holy Spirit. How is the Lord a refuge to His people? How are we living in light of the fact that the restoration has been paid for on the cross? He is present. How else? He is protector. This would have meant something contextually to the people, right? Who are constantly on the beat down by other nations, other enemies, uh, but for us, through the lens of the Gospel, the passage says, "...in Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it." We know this is a future fulfillment because as, as recently as 70 years after the birth of Christ, things are going to happen in Jerusalem that make this say, hmm, maybe it's not quite yet fully fulfilled, Right? But we can trust that God is our protector and our great Savior King is present and protecting and He is providing for our needs. He's present, He's protector, and He is provider. Listen to what the passage says. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Can I just hearken you to remember what we talked about last week as he 
poured out the reins of His Spirit upon us. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Uh, some of your scriptures may say Acacias because this is, a, this is an extremely barren and arid valley that he's referring to that would have no business for anything growing in, but that is part of the benevolent and generous, um, even prodigal providence that the Lord is doing to cause even in the most barren of lands fruit to arise from His watering. And then finally, He is the avenger. Notice what it says, verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. Jesus has taken up His residence through the Spirit in all who trust in Believe in Him by faith. We are not in this alone. I'll conclude this way by just reminding you the truth of the Gospel. There's only one way to escape the attack of God's enemies that are postured against us and have been since our birth. So I think final battle, when all the enemies will be removed and placed totally separate away from us in a place of eternal uh, torment so that God's restorative work in the new heavens and the new earth can be fully realized. Those had to be removed. The fact that God will remove all enemies that are postured against us and that He is the only way to escape those enemies. The solution of that is not found in the strength of horses. It's not found in an alliance of earthly forces, but it can only be found in God alone. Let me share this with you from the Desiring God webpage where he says this, there's no disease, there's no addiction, no demon, no bad habit, no fault, no vice, no weaknesses, no temper, no moodiness, no pride, no self-pity, no strife, jealousy, perversion, greed, or laziness that Christ will not overcome as the enemy of His honor. I say that as a practical way that what will happen ultimately at the last battle can be fleshed out and seen as a day of hope for you right now. His power is not limited and put on pause until that day. It's ever working in you right now for His glory. The last enemy to be defeated is death itself, right? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we live on this side of the great and awesome day of the Lord in light of the grace and glory of God Himself. May we leverage our moments to run from sin and toward righteousness. Not so that we'll earn the decision of God to spare us in that day. We've earned nothing for that. We are recipients of grace through the shed blood of Jesus, which He has lavished on us and dressed us in His robes of righteousness. We earn nothing. But the posture of our hearts is one of gratitude in light of that day, which is hope for us. 
and destruction for those who reject. But it will not be a light day. It will not be a day to be taken lightly. But it will be a day where God finally and ultimately brings resolve to the story and restores the fortunes to His people in His presence uninterrupted forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in spite of us, You made a way for us. And lest we think that before our salvation, we were better off than the enemy armies that tormented Your people as we've seen in the Old Testament. Lord, help us recognize how needy of the Gospel and needy of grace through Jesus we were. And Lord, would You cause the Gospel to be our vision? Would You cause Your Word to be our vision that will, that will lead us into paths of righteousness? And that will lead us to live lives that are worthy of the calling of the Gospel? Father, would You do this in spite of us? We're so grateful for the Gospel. We're so grateful that in spite of a great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming, we do not look forward to that with dread but we look forward to an eternity with You where we will inherit the kingdom that You've prepared for us. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. We exalt Him this morning knowing that what was true, what will be true of the nations would have been true of us had You not radically saved us through the Gospel. What if there are people in this room this morning that have not yet responded to Your call to come and drink of living waters, to repent of their sin, to confess their sin before You, and to accept You as the resurrected Lord and Savior, to forgive their sins, and to make them brand new? Lord, would You move in their hearts so that they might repent of their sin, confess You as Lord, and be saved this day? Thank You, Heavenly Father, for the Gospel truth that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved in Jesus' name. Amen.